Welcome to Burning Platforms, a new podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, where we look at the politics and power of tech. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. In this week's edition, we'll be diving deep into the almost sovereign power of digital platforms with Jathan Sadowski from Monash University's Emerging Technologies Research Lab. But first, our fortnightly wrap of the news with regular panellists, Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. I'm going to kick off by talking about the case involving 7-Eleven. The Privacy Commissioner handed down a ruling about a week ago now calling out 7-Eleven for the technology it was using to collect customer feedback at the counter. So we know 7-Eleven um, has been in the news previously as one of the pioneers of industrial-scale wage theft in Australia. A um, couple of years ago, big investigation, 4,000 workers ended up being paid 100, $176 million in back pay. Um, so they're obviously an organisation and, and they run a franchise model where they like to squeeze what they can out of their workforce. But... And I don't know if any of you have been into stores. Well, if you're in Melbourne, not recently, probably, but like happy Freedom Day to our friends in, in Melbourne. Um, you go in there and you're asked to rate your experience and you can do a smiley, you can do a medium level and, um, you know, a frowny, I guess you call the opposite to a smiley. What people didn't know was they were also taking photos, although I think there were signs up saying you're, you're being monitored, but I don't know that sort of, you know, disclosure really talks for much. Anyway, the Privacy Commissioner ran a case and they said, what are you doing this for? 7-Eleven's response, which they got called out on, was they're actually running this technology to ensure that staff weren't gaming the satisfaction rating by sitting there in the downtime and hitting lots of smileys and obviously getting some high score for the staff. Now, on one level, that seems like a really... Um, silly way of monitoring staff performance in the first place and we can talk about net promoter scores and the inherent bs involved in in that model of of, of um, rating performance but got me thinking what's actually going on with this technology i can't believe that this rated app has been put in there as a tool to monitor staff gaming the tool and, you know, we've been talking quite a bit in recent times about um, facial recognition technology. And it seems that if you can get people to willingly monitor their own emotions and have a photo of themselves taken smiling, frowning or looking neutral, you're actually helping to build this big base of insights to drive the next wave of facial recognition technology. So... I smell a rat in all this, and I'm just wondering if the complaint on the Privacy Commission, which was totally a legitimate complaint, and the Privacy Commission said, you've got to stop doing this, whether there's something bigger involved in all this. So I don't know if that's me putting on a conspiracy theory hat or what, Dan, but I'm interested in your your thoughts on this. And um, Jathan, if you've got any thoughts on this as well, um, feel free to chime in. Oh, well, I might go first if you like, Peter. Yeah. I mean, I... I um... I don't know if there's a conspiracy. I don't know if there needs to be a conspiracy to be deeply bloody concerned about this though, right? I mean, I think the idea that you are effectively creating profiles of people based on photos that you take on uh, on them without it being obvious that you're doing that 
is a pretty concerning um, development. Uh, I'm encouraged at least that they, they were found to be breaking the law here because I didn't think that was even possible under Australia's woefully inadequate privacy regulations. So at least, um, at least, at least that did, did give me some comfort. But the problem here is that you, you're effectively, what this technology enables is it enables you to create profiles of people which you can then be used to build out you know, uh, detailed information about individuals that they mightn't even know is being collected on them. And then you can use that information uh, for discrimination purposes uh, or worse. And, and that's the problem is that it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the problems that we've seen in the advertising market on steroids, whereby you're, you're followed around the internet, uh, depending on what browser you're using or what app you're using. But now it's, you're able to be followed around in the real world by all these cameras with facial recognition technology. So I think Lizzie's called for before a, a ban on this. I think, I think that's probably the appropriate course of action, or at least you need to have a pretty specific reasons for being allowed to do it. So I wasn't hugely surprised. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that there are lots of other large organisations that are doing this that we don't know about. I am aware of... Um, the centre group, the shopping centre group, uh, having had done some investigations into this historically, I, I don't know if they're still doing it. I'm not saying that they are, but I know that they have looked into it previously. So I think this is probably far more widespread than we realise and um, and pretty damn concerning. And I think it just demonstrates the point that we need we need regulation to make it really clear what is and, and, and is not acceptable. And putting a sign up in your window saying, if you enter this store, we're going to create profiles about you uh, should not be, ever be enough uh, to, to allow it to happen. So, so that's my take. Jathan, what's the um, from where you sit? Is this a huge value add the 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 extraction of customer feedback in real time? I just think about it, and and particularly the facial recognition. I'd just be staring into the screen trying to work out how the thing worked anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things here, and and what Dan said, you know, kind of echoing Lizzie, uh, who is not joining us, but you know, happy to. Well, she's that's... just here actually, so she's going to jump in in just a sec. But you oh, go first. Perfect. Uh, wave going I'm... on through the Zoom chat. <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. I mean, echoing that 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 call for a ban, though, you know, the facial recognition is is a pretty unique technology in the sense that there is a broad international consensus amongst uh, many scholars, lawyers, policymakers um, to say, like, this is a uniquely dangerous technology that all of the uses for it, like all of the big use cases for it are nefarious to some end, right? Like, you know, and, and, and calling for a ban of this technology, I think, is no longer really radical. It's quite a mainstream um, approach to this. And, and that is largely because, you know, you ask, what is the value add here? For a lot of these companies, you know, 7-Eleven included, it's not clear that there is a value add. This is very much a kind of shoot first, ask questions later approach to a technology. It's it's saying, let's get this into uh, convenience stores, right? The Financial Times had reporting earlier this week about uh, school systems in Scotland using facial recognition in the canteens to uh, for, for children to, to pay for their lunches, right? Um, and previous Instead of to that, carrying were, around your change, you just, yeah. Well, previous to that, this, they were using fingerprint scanners and the, the justification they said for facial recognition is that it's about speed and convenience, right? But in my mind, when you hear uh, a company or a school system or any institution say, you know, the justification for a technology like this is speed and convenience, you should do a find and replace in your mind for surveillance and control, right? Like that's really what's going on here. And it's about normalizing a technology that frankly shouldn't exist, but making it a kind of 
everyday part of our lives where, you know, it's multiplying these checkpoints um, to get your school lunch, to go into the convenience store, to do X, to do Y. To do home quarantine, right? Exactly. You have to, you have Mm. to scan your face at all these different checkpoints and it just becomes another normal part of what should be seen as highly invasive and unnecessary surveillance in society. Yeah. Lizzie, welcome. Um, what's your take on the 7-Eleven customer feedback facial loop? Yeah, I would agree that it's an instance of seeking forgiveness rather than permission, which too often is the way in which these new kinds of technologies are rolled out. I am also very concerned, what we were just talking about then, with schools using this technology. I did talk to the um, the relevant information regulator here in Victoria who talked about how so many of these programs are kind of vendor-driven. There's people who make these kinds of products and then seek to sell them, you know, to private companies, say, but also to state authorities like the education or department here in, in Victoria. So there was talk also in Victoria rolling out using facial recognition to take the role, which I just think is kind of shocking because I don't even know why you need to optimise the process of taking the role with facial recognition. Like even the convenience argument sort of falls away a bit there. But, you know, it does normalise this culture for children that surveillance is normal, that you have to give up your privacy every time you attend something like school, which you don't have a choice about. And really this is an instance of um, the industry looking for markets to sell their products to and then um, normalising it before regulation can catch up and, and, and seek to have a proper public discussion about whether this is something that's desirable or not. And, yeah, to my mind, we've got to, we've got to push back on this in any way we can. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's very important that the regulator is proactive on it. Excellent. Um, we'll kick on. Um, Dan, almost a segue, you've been looking at Tesla's latest deployment of of technology. What's going on there? Yeah, so this is a really interesting story. Um, So Tesla offers or has offered a a car insurance policy in California for some time, I think on sort of a testing sort of level, uh, which they're now rolling out um, uh, in other states uh, across the US. And it's interesting because it's, it's, it's an insurance policy which Tesla owners can sign up to. Uh, where premiums are determined based on uh, Tesla's recently launched uh, safety score. Um, So this is an artificial intelligence grading system. It scores drivers based on five factors. They are forward collision warnings, hard braking, aggressive turning, unsafe following, and forced autopilot disengagement. Um, So, I mean, look, on on the surface, you go, well, that makes sense. Why shouldn't safe drivers be uh, paying lower premium than other drivers? But... Uh, there are there are it's concerning on two levels it's concerning firstly because once again we are outsourcing decisions that impact on people's lives to machines uh, with what what seems like I don't know but what seems like little if no human oversight and and that's a problem because I think I mean it just has one kind of obvious example that springs to mind what if someone uh, has a bad run uh, being stuck behind uh, a particularly unsafe driver who breaks a lot and therefore you have to break a lot and therefore you're penalised for that uh, or your safety score is, is impacted by that? Um, but the more significant problem is, is probably the, the theme for today, really, and that is the surveillance, which is just becoming normal uh, as, a, as a result of this policy. So, um, you know, this is basically Tesla drivers accepting that their driving habits can be can be kind of under surveillance at all times for by, by a third party entity for a commercial purpose, and that just feels like uh, yet another step down this surveillance um, sort of road, which which concerns me. 
and it also I'd also make the point by the way this isn't this isn't new um, QBE used to offer a product called insurance box which they've since discontinued uh, thankfully but that was similar it was basically their customers were encouraged to down or not encouraged you had to download to, to participate in this policy you had to download an app and that tracked your acceleration and braking habits while you were driving and determined your premiums off the back of it it's it's another step towards surveillance, which is concerning with very little public debate about whether this is a good or bad thing. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty nervous about it, but interested to hear what, uh, what others think. I'll jump in with that because I actually didn't know that this is going to be a story that you're uh, going to be discussing because actually uh, starting next year, I'm, um, I'm beginning a three-year project funded by the Australian Research Council on insurance technology in Australia, looking at the political economy uh, of insurance technology and its kind of impact on everyday life through health insurance, automotive insurance, and property insurance. And, and you're exactly right. You know, this is not new. Um, these kinds of vehicular tele Telematics that they're that which they're called, um, you know, a number of large insurers uh, in in Australia, in the UK, in the US have been rolling out and trialing these things for a number of years, and it really is about trying to make a highly data-driven kind of risk assessment. One of the major insurers in the U.S., Progressive, they have a device called the Snapshot, which a white paper from theirs from about five or six years ago uh, claimed that they would you know, be able to collect enough data about an individual's driving performance to do uh, the statistic of one, which is this idea that, you know, you no longer have to do statistical assessment of populations about risk for insurance purposes. You'd have enough data about every individual person to run statistically significant uh, analysis. And, and it, but it really is about this move towards a kind of hyper-personalization, a kind of demutualizing of risk, right? Insurance is no longer about collect, everybody kind of collectively pooling their risk, um, but instead every single person has to bear the, the, the exact precise cost of their own risk. And it's interesting with the Tesla case here because one of the reasons why Elon Musk has moved towards uh, offering a, a Tesla-only insurance product is because actually a number of insurers uh, we're charging really high premiums, like $500, $600 a month in the U.S. to insure Teslas because they are so demonstrably dangerous uh, vehicles <laughs> um, and that most major uh, auto insurers were like, yeah, we'll insure you if you pay, you know, a lot of money every single month for your premium. So could I throw a um, curveball into that, Lizzie? If that technology, if we know that speed kills, that technology could be used to do real-time testing about whether people are speeding and you could just constantly be, um, rather than waiting for the speed camera or the copper on the road, wouldn't that make our roads safer? I mean, sure. Like, it's like when you get in and you 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 have that noise where you don't put on your seatbelt, which is hugely annoying if you're carrying a heavy parcel on the seat next to you and then you have to reach yeah. across and put the seatbelt on. So there's ways in which it could be a tool for safety, but that's not what we're really talking about here. We're talking about it as a tool for offloading risk onto the individual. Um, so I, I think there's ways in which cars could be designed to improve safety, to minimise the things that we know are risky. There needs to be some supervision of it from a human I think um to be able to avoid you know stand I mean I don't know if this is what you're advocating for Peter but do you automatically get a speeding fine if the if the vehicle is detected at doing above the um the speed limit in a particular area that seems like a pretty 
nasty kind of surveillance state we're talking about there. So there's there's ways in which I think we have to separate, you know, the potential punitive power of the state from, you know, your capacity to participate in life as a private citizen. But yeah, I think there's ways in which we could talk about these in terms of safety rather than risk for the individual. I mean, my worry as well is that this is really going to have huge impacts in relation to health. That's already happening in the US with people being forced on to like, you know, health improvement programs in order to access health insurance. Of course, it's a different kettle of fish in the United States compared to here. But I do think, um, you know, we often, this this idea of the social credit system in China is often invoked as this really scary idea of surveillance, you know, where if you buy nappies, you do better than if you buy alcohol and they're tracking all of that, that affects your social credit score. Well, here's an example of that where you can imagine health insurers start tracking what you purchase and then use that to determine your premium, to determine your accessibility, the accessibility of health insurance. And then your whole life becomes this, um, thing to be observed, um, data to be collected about you that determines um, various very important things in your life, which I think is not really compatible with democratic society, personally. I always think about a quote by a legal scholar, I forget his name, but you know he described the, uh, insurance as the most powerful, pervasive, and ignored institution in society um, because of the way that all the reasons you just laid out there, Lizzie, that insurance companies can have quite drastic influence over our behaviors, over our access to services, um, because it's not the state. And they're able to do a lot of things that the state um, is not able to do um, and wrap it up in things like premium pricing or policy uh, conditions. And, you know, it's all about, well, if you want insurance, then you have to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and and it, it gives a lot of power to insurance companies. And they're kind of, you know, looking at these technologies as another way of increasing that power, of making it more pervasive. And one last point on this, if I could, Peter, what really concerns me is with how this could be applied to health insurance. And, uh, you know, we know all the big tech companies are going into health in a big way, Apple, Amazon, and Google in particular, and the potential for discrimination. And just going away from that kind of notion, which I think you raised earlier, Jathan, of, you know, the, the benefit of insurance is that the, the risk is passed of, of the few is passed among the, the, the to the benefit of the many. And if, you, if you're putting it back on the individual, that sort of principle is undermined in a fairly massive way. And yes, it's safer, but it's it's potentially safer at the expense of pretty some pretty significant impacts on our on our uh, individual rights. So anyway, I'll leave it there. All right, time for you, Lizzie, to talk about your concerns with the debate around anonymity. Yeah, well, I was just pretty worried in recent weeks when Scott Morrison started talking about the problems with anonymity and treating people who are online who are anonymous as cowards. Um, this actually came about because Barnaby Joyce was jumping up and down about this. There were rumours circulating on social media. I hadn't seen this, so first found out about it on Radio National. I didn't really feel like it was that time of the morning for it. But um, about his daughter being in some relationship with John Barilaro, I don't, I didn't see that myself. But his argument was when the press start talking about this, they say that the source of this is social media and, and presumably anonymous people. This is just the next chapter, I think, in the Morrison government's uh, attempt to offload political problems um, that it may be accountable for to some degree onto social media platforms and then use it as an excuse to apply I think quite blunt legislation and I think regulation and I think this might be where we're heading here they the way they're talking does sort of sound like they're going to push for some sort of legislative reform I don't know what that would look like but part of what I wanted to use this opportunity um, to do is I wanted to just put out there a defense of anonymity 
there's a lot of talk online, particularly from the Online Safety Commissioner and the like, about how people being anonymous online contributes to a harmful culture uh, and that a lack of accountability is what drives this and that's that's why anonymity is a problem. I mean, the first thing I'd say about that is our leaders, our political leaders, including Scott Morrison, aren't currently accountable and we know exactly who they are. Um, so there's no um, way in which, um, even if your name is attached to you, there's, there's, you still lack some accountability, I think, in public life for doing bad things. But the, the more important issue here is I think that anonymity is really important. It's important in a democratic society because there's lots of instances where people might need anonymity for really good reasons, including that they're a whistleblower or they're, you know, they're a, a journalist seeking to access that whistleblower. And there's all sorts of, or a source and the like, um, there's all sorts of other reasons why you may wish to have a, an account that isn't attached to your name because you're, you're concerned about your safety and well-being from other people in your private life. Um, that's a legitimate reason to have an anonymous account, in my view. Uh, and then there's this discussion from some people. Um, Daisy Turnbull did an article in the Sydney Morning Herald about this, about how we need to be accountable in our own online lives because that's who we really are. And I think there's a lot of times in your younger life where you, you should have the right to be able to explore your personality without having to attach your real name to yourself because you may be concerned about your well-being. Maybe your parents aren't supportive of you um, having a different sexuality, for example, uh, and you want to connect with different communities online. There's lots of instances, I think, where anonymity can be really helpful to protecting safety and not just be associated with this kind of um, harm of online life. Uh, there is a bit of research about this. So Sam um, from Digital Rights Watch published a great article in Overland about this, talking about how also research doesn't suggest that a real names policy really undermines online harm or things like disinformation. Um, and uh, it's not to discount that this there is a problem with harm in online life, but I think we should be really careful here about slotting into line behind people calling for an end to anonymity for a variety of really good reasons. Dan? Um... I think I disagree with you, Lizzie, um, with, with some nuance. I, I mean, I, I accept uh, that requiring, for example, as, as some people are advocating, as I think, and which I think has merit, that, um, you know, all of these social media accounts have to be tied to a, a real identity comes with trade-offs. And you've, you've rattled through a, a few of them and they are, real, they are real concerns. I just think, though, that the, the, that's a, a lesser evil than the circumstance that we have now if you if you look at sort of the main sort of uh, large social media platforms, I think the worst of them is Twitter, where you probably have the largest number of fake accounts or um, not necessarily fake accounts, but but anonymous accounts, uh, and it's just often a sewer of of debate. Um, then you get to Facebook, where there is uh, yes, still tied to identity, um, but uh, there are still obviously significant problems there. And then at the other end, you have uh, LinkedIn, which is tied to identity and also which is tied to a person's career. And uh, the discourse there is far more civil than the other two. And sort of Facebook sort of sits in between the two of them, if you like. I think there's ways around this. I mean, I think at the very least, you, you need to, uh, all of these platforms, if you're going to be saying something publicly, particularly something which could be defamatory or um, hateful or whatever else, the, the platforms are sell themselves at the very least need to know who you are, even if that is not something which is made public. Although I have a bias towards um, every public comment uh, from someone that uh, has, has to be tied to an individual's identity. I think there's ways around solving these other things. I think that 
you know, if you wanted to remain anonymous and be a whistleblower, there, there are ways of doing that quite easily with mainstream media. I know I always def- defer to that, but I think there are ways of doing that, which, which would make sense. You can, you can easily get information anonymously to journalists. Uh, now there are, it's, it's easy to do that now than ever before. Um, and also I think there's potentially an opportunity for there to be different personas. You could, you could have uh, one identity entity with different personas whereby you discuss different things. And I think that that's also a potential solution to, to some of the problems that you mentioned earlier, but um all right, Will, what do you, what do you think, Pete? Oh, can, yeah, so I'm not going to say I sit in the middle. I think that the idea that you need to, to particularly if you think of ourselves as civic and political beings, um, we should not, we, we should be allowed to have opinions and express those opinions without having to wear those on a long-term digital footprint. Um, and I think particularly young people should not have to carry their digital footprint with them for life. But I have also got concerns that... Um, our friends at QUT who look into disinformation and um, orchestrated disinformation show how fake accounts are weaponized to effectively um, drive the momentum that creates false narratives or um, dangerous public health narratives. So I also note that I don't think it was one of the many now Facebook whistleblowers was, was raising the issues that um, the way that some leaders, despots, um, dictators have also used that sort of massive fake accounts to create the ways that then shape a reality within a political system. So I know that's that, that Lizzie's not saying that's okay, but I just think we need to think through whether, you know, a good social media ecosystem has norms, rules and laws. And how do you work out where those so the norms sit with what's acceptable behaviour, your LinkedIn versus Twitter. The rules are the responsibility on the platform. And then the laws are us as a nation state then saying what goes on on these platforms is not above the law. So just thinking that through probably is more nuanced than just you should be registered or you should be anonymous. Does that make sense, Lizzie? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny to talk about LinkedIn, which is possibly the most boring social media platform in the history of the True world. That, and, yeah. and nobody wants to spend any time on it. Every time I'm on there, I'm like, who are these sociopaths quoting about how great their career is? And you know, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I mean, I enjoy my job, but, you know, I'm not sure that... But that's the price of civility, is it? <laughs> Well, that explains why I, I spend know, all my. That's why it explains why it's my favorite social media platform. I, think, <laughs> <isn't>. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't think that's a. You know, talk, talk about being an authentic, real person. I'm not sure that's that the people on LinkedIn are authentic and real either. I mean, how do you have discussions about controversial topics? And you know, uh, I think it's difficult to think of a way in which you could introduce a law, for example, if we're going to take your kind of framing up, Pete, that would capture what uh, the problem or limit the harm without also compromising a lot of the things that we think probably are necessary or we seem you and I at least seem to be in agreement on so that's my worry that the the Morrison government will venture into this space draft something very heavy-handed it'll be framed around safety and it'll be safety from a very narrow perspective which is policing people's identities rather than say allowing people to explore their identities online in conditions of safety, which I think does therefore include anonymity. So I don't know. I mean, that's my key concern that, that laws are made in politicized ways. And this is a this is going to be another example of that. So, so where do you go with the whole these, you know, these big platforms like Twitter and and Facebook kind of monetize fake accounts as part of their commodity of the size of a network? 
Well, let's talk about that problem properly because I agree with you. There's been instances where social media platforms have been used and hijacked by large numbers of um, essentially fake accounts to do political things. And an example of that is Myanmar, where essentially the military took over all these kind of social um, pages and and, um, essentially talked about instigating genocide. That's a really serious problem. I don't think that's quite the same as people in in the example that um, Scott Morrison was talking about accusing or whatever, circulating rumours about politicians and and their um, family members. That's an example where Facebook does not engage in proper um, kind of moderation in political settings of its platform because it's not in its interest to do so. It's hugely expensive to do so. And that's not congruent with its business model. So Mm. I agree. Facebook needs to do something about that kind of misinformation. That is not the same as, as attributing the source of this problem to anonymity. It's a category error in my view. There are two problems here though, aren't there? I I mean, I think, isn't one potential solution here, though? Couldn't one potential solution simply be, <laughs> let's assume for a second that we can trust the platforms to treat all of our personal information as private and secure. Let's just just go with me on that for one second. Um, couldn't a solution to this be, at the very least, the platforms need to know who you are? So you could still have freewheeling debate and profiles which aren't necessarily publicly tied to you, but it would at least prevent individuals from saying, some of the worst and most defamatory things which are so often said on these platforms in the knowledge that um, if some of these reforms in a more nuanced way come through from the government, that uh, you would be able to be identified if you, uh, at, a, at a push if you were to say something which is completely unreasonable and, and, um, and illegal and you'd be able to be traced back to that. Isn't that sort of a middle ground that could potentially solve a lot of these problems and at least make the discourse slightly, slightly better? I mean, maybe, but yeah, that's sort of what they did with Witness K. You know, they tried to find somebody who'd said something that they thought was illegal and then they've targeted targeted that person. I mean, I, like, I agree with you. There's yeah, but Witness K of- is not is not the, the is a is one example which is pretty um, extraordinary. I mean, I, I'm more concerned with just the everyday discourse that happens because people know there's no consequences to whatever they say online. Yeah, but is, do you think that's what this would be used for? A potential law to to strip people of their right to be anonymous. I mean, I. I I think this is difficult to articulate in the abstract of that proposal, but I suspect their motivations are to deal with people like that rather than the people you're describing personally. I mean, I think there's other ways to deal with that kind of online harm, like design structuring how these platforms are designed. You know, we've talked about Facebook and how one of the key determinants of harm on that platform from a design perspective is the share button. So let's talk about that instead of anonymity, in my view. Let's talk about what the problem we're trying to solve. And I don't think the problem we're trying, talking about now is the same one that the Morrison mm. government is trying to solve, personally. I, I might use this as a segue into special guest who's already um, shared his thoughts with us, Jathan. And what, what Dan actually raised was almost kind of one of the things we were keen to explore with you, which was almost the um, social media platforms as nation states. So Dan was kind of talking about citizenship of the nation state of Facebook. And then you can then, once once you're a citizen, you can do what you like on the platform because there'd be rules and norms and, you know, in a perfect world anyway. So, so your starting proposition that just really jumped out at me this week on Twitter was... Um, Digital platforms are becoming more like or trying to become nation states while nation states and governments are trying to become platforms. So do you want to unpack that a bit and tell us whether that was just, you know, a thought bomb or something you've been going through in in some detail and then we can jump off from there? 
Yeah, yeah. Twitter is the only social media where I do have an account. So, I, I, you know, I like to get down in the muck, uh, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I love, by, by the way, I love Twitter. I mean, in all seriousness, it is actually my favorite platform, but it's, it's, it's frequently a sore. Anyway, keep, keep going. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, to, to Peter's kind of uh, proposition here, this is something I've been thinking about for a very long time, this kind of, uh, uh, this, this double dynamic I see happening of, as you laid out, Peter, you know, platforms increasingly reaching for the sovereignty of nation states, while at the same time, governments and states themselves kind of repositioning or remodeling their approach to governance as one of becoming platforms. So it's a very interesting kind of inversion happening here, but one that is very much kind of based in history, right? Like, if you look at political theory around the origins of the corporation, they started out as franchise governments, right? Thinking that quite literally on what political theorists call franchise governments, things like the Dutch East Indies Company that were essentially given a franchise by the government to then go out and act on behalf of the government, like a government in col- and, and you know in colonies, increasingly the the impetus here towards these kind of large corporations to metastasize into world powers has always been there, but it has been one that has been kind of carefully bound right to limit that ascension to full sovereignty to fully kind of meet the state on the uh, uh, in the in the arena of power. But I think what we are seeing very much right now. Um, and, and increasingly over the last handful of years is a lot of tech companies quite explicitly having the ambitions to step in where they perceive that the state has failed uh, in providing services um, to step in in the case, you know, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, Sidewalk Labs, which is a um, subsidiary of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, the, the corporate structures here are, are, are out of whack, but th- that's another topic. But, you know, they, they laid out this whole plan to essentially own and develop a um, waterfront district in Toronto, which they wanted to make as their kind of own sovereign territory. They would set the rules, they would do the governance, it would be this kind of techtopia for experimental technology. And the only reason that didn't happen in the uh, tri-governmental body in charge of it called Waterfront Toronto was pretty fully on board with this plan saying, yeah, we're happy to kind of hand over this territory and the governance of it to this company. And the only reason it didn't happen was because of massive public pushback by community groups there saying, we don't want a, co- a, a platform, a tech company to and uh, to step in and, and have all this power. Now, Sidewalk Labs blamed it on on the pandemic and the the you know the, the deflationary real estate prices and all that. They would never admit that the public could actually step in and hold them accountable. But this is not anomalous. This was more of a test case. And you know, I, I, the the Twitter thread that you're referring to, Peter, was really raised by some reporting again in the Financial Times about this uh, this platform called Doctolib uh, in France, which has really kind of stepped in as a as an intermediary between France's very robust public health care sector, which has for a very long time kind of been hesitant about letting the private sector take control of any of it, 
But due to the pandemic, a lot of the normal rules around partnering with private companies were suspended. And so this platform, Doctolib, stepped in and, and, and essentially sat in the middle of you know, connecting people to doctors, you know, uh, creating what they call the kind of sales force for the doctor's office or a kind of customer service management platform while open table for patients or a kind of reservation type system. Um, and, and they grew wildly by skimming off a bunch of value from essentially stepping in and providing a service that the state should have been providing you know, so that's that kind of the platform stepping in and saying, we are now the, the, the primary social service provider um, for anything and everything uh, in your life. But at the same time, the French government was quite explicitly saying, you know, this is part of our ongoing uh, approach under, uh, you know, the presidency of Emmanuel Macron, who came into office saying he wants to make France into a startup nation. Um, and it's under this governance model that they call the state as a platform, where we can start thinking about it as essentially a, a political philosophy of governance that takes serious the premise of what if instead of a government, we had Amazon Web Services, right? Essentially, the government, the, the, the primary responsibility of the government is to provide the infrastructure to do all of that unglamorous, unprofitable, kind of boring stuff of infrastructure provision for tech companies who then step in and provide social services for the public. So it's, it's a very uh, interesting kind of approach that's happening all at once of states ready to cede sovereignty to tech companies, while these tech companies are very eagerly ready to accept that sovereignty. Because, I mean, ultimately, I think that they they think rightfully so that there's a lot of power and profits to be uh, garnered by being the, the primary service provider in society. Yeah, I find that really interesting, particularly in the context of one of the things that I'm really enamored of, which is to rethink the ABC as a civic platform. So I don't know where that fits into to your analysis, but it's it's not handing over um, the engagement to corporations. I think that's the bit where government needs to stand up and actually play the role that it that we created it for. Yeah, and there is a this kind of what some scholars call kind of anti-politics, right? Where it is very much a the the politics of the day is an anti-politics. It no longer conceives of these obligations and responsibilities in terms of politics, in terms of things like democratic decision making, public accountability, uh, you know, obligations to the to to the citizenry and inhabitants of a nation state, but more so about the politics has been replaced by economics, right? It's about what kind, what kind of economic goals um, is the is the nation state, the the government, kind of primarily in charge of promoting, and how do we how do we achieve those goals? All that kind of nasty stuff about um, political responsibility and the and the obligations of a of a governing institution fall away in regard, uh, rather instead replaced by a kind of market mentality of how can we help to construct markets, such as for by providing infrastructure for, for a tech platform provided services, um, and how can we uh, kind of maintain and organize those markets so that they don't fail, so that they don't go under, so that they remain profitable. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, this is, you know, the tech, com the tech industry is, a, uh, I think, a, a, a quite 
remarkable and influential area where this is happening, but certainly not the only place where this is happening as well. I mean, we can see this very much with like the real estate sector as well, where the government for a very long time has kind of seen itself as a, a mandate of maintaining the real estate market, ensuring that real estate prices continue to go up and up forever. I mean, this is all part of that kind of uh, subjugation of the economic, the ethical, the social to um, economic uh, mandates. Lizzie? Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to say the, I spent a lot of time thinking about Uber because that's my day job. It's, you know, I've got a class action against them and I think I probably know more about the company than most people. Um, but one of the things I was going to say is, yeah, it's interesting to watch Uber do this where they um, have offered a service um, outside of regulations and then now in Sydney, uh, you can use your Opal card in an Uber, uh, and and we're I think one of the few places in, in the world where that's permitted. So they've they've come forward as a private provider of a service that then have integrated into the public infrastructure that already exists. Even though I would argue that they're two different things, so it's like a privatisation of public services. Um, but the the thing I wanted to talk about is like there's companies like that that integrate themselves into the provision of service that you'd normally expect from government. But there's also companies like Palantir who occupy space that's created through the de-skilling of the public service and this long uh, decline through neoliberalism over the last 30, 40 years as we've stopped seeing government as a place that produces things or that has uh, a lot of um, knowledge and capacity to make and respond to uh make things and respond to world events. Instead, we see them as a, a husk that's there to serve uh, the private sector. And, you know, somewhere, a company like Palantir um, makes a huge amount of its money from coordinating data analytics across different sectors and, you know, perhaps directly but probably more indirectly also ending up creating public policy through, you know, essentially making decisions in a private setting about how to analyse that data and, I wondered if you if you thought that was a correct way to kind of um, talk about these platforms because in some ways when we talk about a platform it can mean lots of different things and I just sort of wanted to tease that out, Jason, if you if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, lots there, and the the Uber um, uh, example is also, I mean, definitely very relevant here. The you know a uh, a pretty a pretty high up uh, bureaucrat in the in France's health ministry, and this is in this Financial Times article from earlier this week, um, wrote a book. Uh, a few years ago called Let's Uberize the State Before Someone Does It For Us, right? Which is a very funny kind of ultimatum there, right? Of essentially putting a gun to your own head and saying, we have to become a platform or because if we don't, someone is going to pull this trigger for us. Um, so I'd rather pull the trigger myself. <laughs> but the, 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 the case of, of like Palantir and, and yeah, I mean, I think in large part, understanding like what is a platform is 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 part of this as well, and it is a very kind of nebulous terminology. But I, in in my work and trying to understand the kind of political economy of the platform, like how does this this business model actually operate? Um, for me, the 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 best analogy is one of a. Uh, it's not something new and unlike anything we've ever seen before, you know, in the way that a lot of the kind of tech evangelists tend to say around disruption, right? Nothing has ever been like this and it'll never be the same after. But for me, platforms very much fall into a, a long tradition of rentier capitalism, right? It really is about uh, becoming an intermediary, about putting yourself in the middle 
of some kind of economic activity or social interaction and collecting some rent out of that by uh, uh, controlling access or mediating access to some service or some form of connection, right? I always think about uh, Zuckerberg uh, a few years ago in one of his many congressional uh, hearings, you know, when asked why Facebook is not a monopoly, his defense of it was that he sees all forms of people connecting with each other as a competition to his business model, right? And we saw this with like the Wall Street Journal's Facebook file reporting where, you know, people uh, at Instagram were, were talking about, you know, uh, what, how, how can we get deeper into the play date market, right? You got all these kids and they're having play dates and they're not using Instagram for these play dates. How can we uh, cut off a piece of that competitive market? So, you know, it is this idea of all interactions, all activity uh, must be made open to a platform stepping in the middle of it and collecting some rent out of that, not necessarily by creating any value or doing anything productive, but simply through ownership of some uh, 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 form of access to something else. And, and so I think that's a, that's a way to understand the, this platform model and how a lot of these, you know, X as a service or Uber for X um, type of business models really operate is essentially how do we get in the middle of something? And that's, that's where I'm seeing a lot of this, uh, you know, what, what I was talking about before, the kind of state acting like a platform and platforms acting like a state is this can't happen with, you know, ultimately without both of those parties agreeing to play ball with each other. You know, the markets are not uh, found in nature. They're created um, by the state and they're created by corporations. And I think this is a case of, of a market being created. And what you're talking about with like Palantir and the kind of de-skilling of the public sector and the capacity to actually do these things in-house is ultimately another form of creating a market. Uh, you know, of, of saying that this is a, it, it, it that very much falls under that neoliberalism of outsourcing, privatization, austerity, public-private partnerships. But I think it even goes further than that. Um, this kind of state as a platform model, for me, it, it, it's not just about privatization or austerity. It really is about a, a kind of fundamental reconfiguration of what the state's primary responsibility is here. Um, and I, I think, you know, we can call it neoliberalism 2.0 or something like that, but it's it's not it's not only just the same thing as, you know, Thatcher Redux or Reagan Redux. It, it, it's taking on a different shape in part because I think that uh, a lot of the leaders of this, you know, the, the Zuckerbergs and the Bezoses and so on, um, have a lot more ambition than to simply uh, provide a service for a profit. They also want power. They want power in society and, and they see themselves as equal to the state um, and in other and, and in some forms uh, usurping the state beyond the state. Isn't it also though, Jathan, a problem that we just didn't we didn't see as a society really the internet's potential and so outsourced it to private companies from the beginning? I mean, that's half the problem with it. And then you have it's accelerated by governments making decisions and picking winners in a way by saying, well, Uber is uh, you can use your Opal card and your Uber now, and therefore you kind of they're they're almost becoming the indispensable transport application that um, is embedded with the state. But, but I mean, I, as I see it, though, there's, there's potentially two remedies to this in some way. And that is that, number one, there's more things like what you're advocating for, Peter, whereby the ABC takes on a role 
as um, as perhaps providing a, an alternative social media network that that isn't just about profit. And I think it, it will it will be helpful if there was much more debate around what that could look like. But two, as a relatively blunt instrument, but nonetheless, I think one which is long overdue and really affected. I mean, effective is I just think to reduce the power of these companies effectively taking on the role of the state isn't just breaking them up and making them less powerful a really um, easy, well, not easy, but a solution to this. I mean, isn't, isn't half of the problem. I mean, the, the problem with Google taking over that particular element of um, Menlo Park or whatever it was, I mean, they're just such a massive company and forcing them to divest out of double click first would be my uh, pick, but then also YouTube um, and the thousand other things that they own. Doesn't that then just at least go back to the sort of Brandeisian school of, of antitrust, which would mean that it gives a it gives a um, space for the for the state to play a, a more active role than it's currently able to? Isn't isn't that a potential solution? I mean, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm an advocate for antitrust. Absolutely, I think antitrust is a is a is a a a big hammer here that we've just kind of left laying on the wayside and definitely need to pick up again. And, you know, I I don't feel heartened by many things, but I am heartened by, you know, in the the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, which is the kind of big government watchdog and regulator for the market and competition under its new chairperson, Lena Khan, is very much has or very much has big tech in the crosshairs, you know, very much saying they're too powerful. Um, they, they no longer are powerful uh, actors in the market. They are owners of the market. And that, and that is a problem. Um, and antitrust is absolutely part of, the, part of the solution here, but also so is the solution of a kind of uh, a resurgence of, as Lizzie was saying, a kind of public capacity to actually do things, to no longer just you know, invest a lot of money into building infrastructure that tech companies can then go on and profit on top of, but to actually invest infrastructure that's owned for the public, by the public, for these socially beneficial purposes, that is part of the solution here as well. I had a recent Guardian piece about Facebook. And in that piece, I talk about how, you know, when when Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp temporarily went offline, um, you know, due to a technical problem, and they were offline for about a day or something. And, 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 you know, through that, we saw just how dependent a lot of people have become on these services for so many everyday activities, especially because in a lot of countries, especially in the global south, uh, WhatsApp is not just a group chat messaging application. It is the internet for a lot of these places. It is the primary portal to um, accessing the internet and doing stuff on the internet. And so, but, but that is by design. These companies have gone in and made themselves necessary parts of our lives. And so it was a shock to kind of be without them. And, and I think, you know, Facebook as this conglomerate of all these products would probably see this as evidence that our lives are too intertwined with its services for them to ever go away. Right, they're too big to fail. Um, but I think, as the company has proven time and time again, our interest and its interests are rarely aligned with each other. And we should instead recognize that allowing a company like Facebook to design and own critical infrastructure with zero accountability is the worst of all possible options that we could find ourselves in. And the only way to go about fixing that is yes, break them up, but then also answer that question of what's going to fill that vacuum? Um, What's going to replace them? And I don't think it's about having multiple 
different WhatsApps or Instagrams in a competitive market. I think it is about saying, what role does the state here have beyond just being a service provider for tech companies? It's three things though, isn't it? It's, it's breaking them up. It's, it's enforcing transparency and regulation around their operations. And, and those two things then create the space for the state to play a more active role in some of these um, services, which have become critical to the way we live our daily lives. I mean, I think you have to do these things in concert, right? But um, mm, yeah. um, let's hopefully get some action on at least one of those things soon. But we're, we're winding down the clock. So, um, Lizzie, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get you a wrap-up, but maybe also give us a bit of a, a hint about what's happening in the next couple of weeks for you, apart from, like all of us, watching to see what Facebook changes its name to. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not that intrigued. I think it'll still be the same company, of course. Um, yeah, I would say that. I just wanted to preserve the idea that we should still be a little critical of government and its capacity to surveil. So I think any kind of creation of infrastructure that comes about, because the state really is the only kind of entity with the size to kind of take on and occupy these spaces in competition with these mega companies. We should just be careful about preserving people's rights to to participate in, in online life without being watched by the government. But um, I think that's a, probably another another topic. Uh, but, yeah, we at Digital Rights Watch have another event coming up. If you've been following our series, it's actually kind of inspired in part by the, the news ban that Facebook conducted and looking at how we could make social media platforms work for people who use them and what the internet would look like if that were the case. And so we've done it with, you know, um, writers and, and other people who, make content online and we've got the latest one so you can come along to that it's in um late november but you know get on our email list of course if you're interested in what we're up to excellent dan anything that you've got your eyes out over the next the next week uh as usual i'm woefully unprepared no i'm i'm busy preparing to um figure out a way to bring our staff back from um this world that we've been living in for most of the last 18 months and come back into the office um so um i stress nothing is is happening in the short term but that's what's occupying most of my time at the moment to be honest so um uh maybe one day we'll be able to do one of these in person peter that's my that's my dream it would be fantastic and jathan's thanks for your time um what are you looking out for over the next couple of weeks uh, over the next couple of weeks, in, instead of that, I, I'll, I'll just do some quick, uh, two quick plugs here. So I do have a, a, a book um, that I am, you know, obligated to plug. It's called Too Smart, and it's about smart technologies and digital capitalism. Um, so that's available online or, you know, any, anywhere you buy books. But, um, and also, I, I do have my own podcast as well, which uh, every week looks at these kinds of topics around political economy and technology, which is called This Machine Kills. And I co-host that with Edward Anguesso Jr., who's a great journalist at Motherboard Vice. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. And we will definitely cross-promote that because that was a fantastic contribution today. This has been Burning Platforms, a new podcast from the Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis. We held this webinar on Friday the 22nd of October and things may have changed since recording. The world moves fast. It was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. The video link is available on our website, centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au or our YouTube channel. Just do a search for Centre for Responsible Technology where you'll find all our previous episodes as well. You'll find more information about the centre and links to our research papers as well as a weekly blog on our website as well. This episode was produced by Jennifer Macy. Stay safe and thanks for listening.